0: Great to see everybody. Welcome to Thursday nights. Yeah, Mark chapter fourteen. We're gonna be reading tonight, beginning in verse ten. <clears throat> so I'm gonna go ahead and read a couple of verses. Actually, I'm gonna read a lot of verses. We're uh, just going from ten to thirty-one tonight, and then we're going to pray and we'll jump into the scripture. The Bible says in verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when the, the sacrificed, excuse me, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, One after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born." And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, by the way, just to let you know, um, by this time, Judas Iscariot had left to go to uh, the high priests and the leaders to, to betray Jesus. And by this time, of course, you know uh, that the foot washing had already uh, taken place. And so now kind of deep into the Passover celebration... Verse twenty two, and as they were eating he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And and God, uh, uh, truly just, uh, uh, in a way, a mixed bag. God, so many amazing, beautiful things in the fulfillment of the ancient celebration, the ancient feast of Passover, and then yet, simultaneously, so much chaos and conflict and turmoil and and we thank you, God that in the storm you still accomplish your purposes. God in the in the adversity, in the moments where it might even seem like the enemy is winning. God in, in the end you always have the final word. And we thank you for that. We thank you that through your son you have had the final word and And we only have to look as far as the cross and the resurrection to know that it is finished. It has been done. And God, we confess there are times where our hearts beat wildly for this. And and it's just clear, crystal clear, clear as day. And then there's other times, Father, where it seems as if we see through a fog And we struggle, and and maybe the feelings aren't as rich and robust as we long for them to be. In all of that, in our own mixed bag, thank you, God, that you don't let go. Thank you, God, that we are kept by the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Tonight, we pray that you would just give us a little more light. God, give us a little more insight. Give us a little more reason to turn our hearts in full devotion to you, in full worship, and in, in adoration, in full surrender and obedience. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I was reading one of my favorite theologians. And, you know, he was talking about the issue of atonement. Um, and, you know, the argument kind of goes like this. A lot of people, when they talk about the atonement, particularly scholars, uh, a lot of times they have a tendency to draw from uh, the Pauline epistles because, you know, it seems like that's where so much of our doctrine, our understanding of the atonement is laid out. Um, He was remarking that it's, it's fascinating that They will do that. They will draw from the Pauline epistles to establish their understanding of the atonement at the expense of even reading the Gospels, at the expense of looking at what Jesus said. Um, And, you know, in saying saying all of that, he said um, that it never surprises him. He never ceases to be amazed how many Christians just read a few verses from the Gospels how many Christians really don't know or understand the gospel accounts? Um, and, you know, his, his, his way of illustrating it was, there are some Christians who read the gospels kind of like in uh, uh, Aesop's Fable. You know, there's a little story here and a little story there, but there's never really any digging in to discover what it is that not only Jesus did and how he lived, but what it was that he, he taught. And... I think this is so important, and every time we roll around to um, Easter, one of the encouragements I give to the church is to read the Passion account in every one of the Gospels, you know? I mean, it's, it's not an easy undertaking. It takes a lot of time. That's a lot of reading. reading. There's just no doubt about it, but it's, it's, it's amazingly worth it. Um, as you really do, just take the time to dig into what the Bible says about Jesus and his sacrifice and his resurrection. And not only that, but to hear from his own mouth, to read his own words about redemption and atonement from his perspective. Um, And I just think it's such an important thing for us to do because when we are really reading and digging in to the gospel accounts, we begin to understand how God in Christ overcame the broken relationship between God and God and humanity, between God and ourselves. And, and and you guys know, this is the issue. There's no bigger issue. I mean, we can talk all day long about, you know, the turbulence in the world and And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that these things aren't important. I'll start from least important to more important to the most important. But we can talk about the turbulence in the world and and inflation and uh, economics and the future and recession and politics and the war in Ukraine. And all these things are important. There's no doubt about it for sure. Um, And then we can look at the scripture and we can talk about ancillary issues like um, eschatological timings of the rapture um, or what the millennium really looks like or what what really is heaven going to be like or you know and then there's a long list of things there Um, and then you know without a doubt we get to the most important thing and that's how god fixed the problem how god solved the issue how god dealt with our brokenness and our lostness when i talk about a, a relationship That was broken between God and man. I'm not saying God broke it. I'm not saying that God failed his part. I'm not saying that God didn't come through. Of course, we know we are the ones who are culpable. We are the ones who broke it through Adam. There's no doubt about it, but we can't just lay the full blame at his feet. We play our part as well. And so, look, I'm just saying it is fascinating to me that we can want to be experts in so many things that really don't even come close to mattering as much as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really for the believer, like something's, the switch has got to flip with respect to that. Because if it doesn't, you know what we'll do is we'll give birth to a generation of shallow Christians, you know, who are 10 miles wide and and one inch deep. Who really, because everything happens in the gospel, right? Our lives are rooted at the cross of Christ and the resurrection and everything flows from that. They're not rudimentary issues. These aren't just like rhetorical topics that we learn a little bit about and then we move on to to deeper things. No, that's not the case. They may be the elemental aspects of our faith uh, with respect to this is where we begin, but we never stop plumbing those depths, we never get to the bottom of it. I mean, when you and I are in heaven, we're not going to be having theological conversations over, well, was a denomination right or was a denomination wrong? We're going to be asking God to give us more insight into his son and the sacrifice that, that he made. Be, and, and the truth is this, like there's no, there's no greater thing for us to focus on. How God lifted humanity and creation from the bondage of decay and destruction and, and started, instituted Uh, In all out renovation, in all out renovation, because that's what he did through the cross. I think that it's important because this really is the key essential that unites us together um, as Christians. And tonight, what we read and what we're going to talk about a little bit, and I probably will have an unconventional approach to uh, these verses tonight, but what Jesus does, and it's easy for us to miss, especially as. 21st century Christians, the vast majority of us being Gentile, what Jesus does is he uses a 1300 year old living metaphor as a as in this is like putting it too lightly, but as an illustration or a picture of what it was that he was about to do, Um, and of course, you know, I'm talking about the Passover. Right, A 1,300-year-old, um, God-instituted feast that was looking forward to prophetically um, its ultimate fulfillment in a single person, in Jesus Christ. And what, what he does here, remember, you know, we're talking about the Last Supper. We're talking about the upper room experience. Um, it's not arbitrary. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, it just so happened that, you know, the, the night that he was going to be betrayed right before he was going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and then ultimately to be crucified, it just happened to be the Passover as if it could have been any one of the three major feasts that uh, Jewish men at a certain age were required to attend from all over the world. Like, like it couldn't have been Pentecost and it, and it couldn't have been tabernacles. It had to be Passover because there was unbelievable uh, meaning and depth to this particular feast that God had foreordained, that God had intended. And tonight, we're just going to take a little peek into the background of uh, Passover. And when Jesus, you know, really our focal point tonight is what Jesus says in verse 9, excuse me, in verse 22. He says, take this is my body uh, and then, of course, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is my, the blood of the covenant. Uh, and so, really, that's going to be our focal point tonight. Um, what did that mean? What were, they, what were they experiencing in that moment? What was the context uh, for the Jewish mind at that point in time, and what connections were they making from an Old Testament perspective that they had the privilege of experiencing the fulfillment of? Um, wrapped, like wrapped in that amazing moment was all of this turmoil, right? And so if you, as you go back and you read these verses, what you discover is you discover that he was being betrayed by Judas. Um, you discover as we were reading together that he was go- going to be denied by Peter. And then you also read that um, all of his disciples, You know, the key disciples, the closest, the ones who were closest to him, the rest of them were going to fall away. The shepherd was going to be smitten and all the sheep will be, all the sheep will scatter. And, you know, this amazing thing that God was doing was wrapped in this turbulence or this chaotic moment. Um, And, you know, frankly, as a leader, I've reflected on this because I think for a long time as I was growing as a leader, I had this I had this perception that if I was going to lead like Jesus led, there would never be problems. You know, if I was going to lead like Jesus led, there would never be conflict. If I was going to lead like Jesus led, I, I would never uh, have turbulence on the, the team um, or I would never experience betrayal. Um, but the truth is this, there's no better leader than Jesus and there's no better leader than God the Father. And I just want to remind you that that the father, the greatest leader of all, experienced betrayal from one of his chief angels. And not only, not only you know, did Lucifer rise up, uh, carried away of course in pride, but he gathered a third of the angels with him as well, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12. And so it's like, I want to encourage you if you're leading tonight and maybe you're experiencing some, some turbulence, and of course, this is never you know, a justification to be a horrible leader because we don't, we don't want to be uh, causing unforced errors or creating the turbulence ourselves because of our ungodliness or um, because we're not being led by the Spirit. But, but the truth is this, you can, you can be an amazing leader and still experience difficulty. The Father experienced it with Lucifer. Jesus experienced it with Judas. By the way, remember, Judas was someone... Who was entrusted with a lot? He was—he was—he um, was the CFO. He was the chief financial officer. You know, he was the one that was responsible for, for for the money. You know, I mean, when you when you pick someone like that, and of course Jesus knew. It wasn't like, dang, I never thought it was going to be Judas. You know, I mean, it's not like he was shocked. Um, at the same time, you know, if you watch the old Jesus movies, it's like you can always, before a word is said, you can always tell who Judas is, right? I mean, it's like he just, like he just looks stinky. He he looks he looks shady. That he is just shady, right? I mean, he's got well, he's got a goatee. This this might not be good. Let me let me rethink my <laughs> let me rethink how I say this. Yeah, I mean, his eyes. He's 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 lurking. He's always lurking and. You know, that was not the case. That was not the case. Jesus wasn't surprised, but I guarantee you the other disciples were. So surprised that when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to betray me, uh, it wasn't like they're like, we know who it is. We know who it is. Say no more. Like, let's just, you know, take this guy outside and, and, and give him what he deserves because, like, we've known for a long time. I mean, that was not the case. They were, they were like, "Is it I? Is, is it I?" Because it, it just wasn't that. It wasn't that obvious. Uh, and then, listen, it wasn't just Judas. It was all of the disciples. But, but let me before I say all of the disciples, let me just say it was also Peter. You know, Peter had similar tendencies that Judas had. He did. And there's a lot of if you read through the Gospels and you do a, a study on Peter and Judas, you you will see like you know it was a razor's edge between. Peter going the right way or the wrong way and he ended up he ended up being in a place that he could not have perceived himself I don't think when he just was defiantly resisting what Jesus had said about him denying about Peter denying Jesus I think when he was vehemently resisting that he was being sincere but he was so sincere He was so sincerely wrong because his eyes have been blinded by pride. And you know, pride will do that. Pride will deceive us to the reality of our own hearts to the extent that we can end up in a place we never thought that we would be, never, I'm not saying today that it's like we always plan our pathway to sin, but we can be so self-deceived that we end up in a place we just never thought that we would be. And then it was also all of the disciples. I say all of that to say that there was turmoil on this team. And it's important for us to remember as we think about all the turmoil that was happening in the inner circle that there was a spiritual reality that was happening behind the scenes. I think a lot of times we frame this in human terms and we forget that there there was like, you know, these moments, these hours, uh, there was a full expression of satanic wickedness i mean it wasn't as if judas was just a bad guy that kind of made some bad decisions he was possessed by the devil himself and 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 what was really going on was there was this wrestling not against flesh and blood but against rulers against the authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil Paul says, in the heavenly places. In other words, I'm saying to you, the adversary was at work. The adversary was at work. In this moment where the work, right, the the straight-up climax of everything that God had intended, the climax of the grand narrative of Scripture, as it's about to be fulfilled, the devil is doing everything he can in the closest circle of Christ's friends to keep him distracted from the goal. And I, that, that will happen to you. As you, with all of your heart, desire to seek God and follow God, and you get to that place where it's like, man, you lay it down, and you're walking by faith, I'm saying to you, the adversary, not that, not that you tonight should fear him, you should fear the Lord, Not not that tonight you should be so consumed with the devil that you choose not to take a step of faith. I'm not saying that at all because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But I'm saying to you, don't be surprised when all hell breaks loose, right? And I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about in the inner circle. In the inner circle. Be prepared for that. And be prepared for it so that you can handle it the right way. You know, I love the way that Jesus handles Peter and, you know, the gentleness that he handles Peter with. And in that moment after, you know, as you read on, after he goes through the process of denying, he looks, the Bible says that, you know, he was in the court of Caiaphas and his eyes locked with the eyes of Jesus. I mean, they locked in that moment after his final denial and everything was like, he was right, he was right. You know, that wickedness was there within me and I never even saw it. And his words were fulfilled. And everything that he lived for had been broken in that moment. And I, when their eyes locked, what was it that Peter saw? Because after that, the Bible says he wept bitterly. There was a, there was a brokenness, right? And, and then when Jesus restored Peter, it was like, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. And I think that when this isn't even really the topic tonight, but I think that when Peter looked into the eyes of Jesus, what he saw was compassion, and he saw mercy, and he saw love, like relentless love, real relentless love, because you know how we are. Like, when we tell somebody they're going to blow it, and then they blow it, you know how we can, we can have the tendency to be like, well, I told you, so idiot. I told get over here so I can smack you, because like... You should, have, you should have, right? You know how we are. You should have taken my advice. And he did not get that from the Lord. You know, I think, and I know that this is the case because the Bible in the end of John's gospel lays it out. The, the restoration of Peter, he saw compassion and he saw mercy and aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that he's compassionate? and merciful. Listen, the context of this story was Passover. And so, remember, Exodus chapter 12, um, if, if it was you, and this is kind of how the story goes, um, Judas is going to do his thing initially before everything is set up for the Passover meal. Um, it's the day of unleavened bread. This would This would have, there's a lot of argument over this, and I'm not going to go into the detail of it tonight, but this would have been, from my point of view, Thursday, right? Thursday, they would have been preparing for eating the Passover meal. Now, the Passover lamb would have been selected on Sunday. And remember, um, that lamb would have been selected, a lamb for a family. Um, it would have been brought into the home. Uh, it would have lived with the family for three or four days. It would have been surveyed, very carefully inspected by the priest to make sure that it was a sufficient sacrifice because the Passover was remember. Um, the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples was connected to Exodus chapter 12, the original Passover. And that story goes, uh, remember, the Israelites were in Egypt. They were living under the harsh rule of Pharaoh, and they had pleaded with God for someone to redeem them, for God to send a redeemer. And God, of course, did through Moses and It was, as the Bible says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm that God delivered the Israelites. I mean, there were many, many wonders that were done um, on behalf of the nation of Israel um, to provoke Pharaoh to release his chokehold on the people. Of course, he was uh, unwilling to do that, and it all consummated with the judgment of God coming and the loss of the firstborn of all of the people in the land um, except for those who did as God instructed. What did God instruct? He instructed them to select a, a lamb on the 10th of Nisan, to take that lamb into the household, one lamb per family. The, house would, the, the lamb would live in that home for four days on the 14th of Nisan at twilight. The lamb would be sacrificed, and the blood would be poured into a basin. And then hyssop would have been dipped into that basin and sprinkled on the doorpost and the lentil of the home. And on that evening, when the angel of destruction passed over the land and executed judgment um, on the firstborn of all of those living in Egypt at the time, the angel of destruction would notice the blood that had been sprinkled and would pass over, pass over in mercy, pass over in relenting in judgment And that household would experience salvation, that all this would have been, quote, unquote, saved. And so from that point in time, there was this Passover festival that was established um, every year in the, well, not really in the nation of, of Israel, because, you know, for 40 years, the nation wasn't really established, but for the Jewish people, for sure. And so by the time you get to the time of Jesus, there had been 13 hundred at least Passovers that had been celebrated, 1300 reminders of what God had had done in the past. 1300 opportunities to look back and to acknowledge the faithfulness of God in instituting uh, the Passover system where sins could be covered, where sins could be atoned for um, and then, not really necessarily realizing it wasn't intended by God for the people just to look back and to remember, but it was looking forward to a particular moment in time where he would send the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And that's exactly what this Passover was. You know, it was the fulfillment. It was the fulfillment of all that God had foreordained in that original moment that Passover scene in Exodus chapter 12. And remember with me, it was the deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. It was a pathway through uh, the sea that had been parted. It was the bread that had been poured out uh, upon the people from heaven. Just as when Christ was crucified, He delivered us from the bondage of sin, and we walked through the waters of baptism, and He is the bread of life that sustains us. And so there's all of this imagery that is tied into this moment. But when they sat down together on the evening of Passover, remember the lamb had been slain, um, and then that evening at twilight, day beginning at night... The Jewish day began at night, not in the morning, so at 6 p.m. in the evening was when the new day began for the Jew, because they arranged their days according to what was written in the book of Genesis, always started in the evening. And so at twilight, after the sacrifice had been made, they sat down to have what was called the Seder dinner. Um, The word Seder means order, and... Um, the order of the dinner, some of you have experienced this with us. Years ago, we did Seder dinners here, um, and it was pretty amazing, pretty extraordinary. It was a lot of work, and so we stopped doing them. Watch the video, okay? It was a lot of work. Um, but but the, the dinner was arranged around four cups of wine, the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise, And so what you have in the Seder dinner is you have this very carefully choreographed meal that has tied into it all of this biblical imagery and significance. And I want to just point out a couple of things that would have happened um, on this night as Jesus was with his disciples, because they would have been celebrating this meal that 2,000 years later is still celebrated the same way. And so today, Jewish people will celebrate the Seder dinner. They'll go through this order, and for the vast majority of them, there is still a spiritual blindness. They can't see the significance of all of the different pieces of the Seder that point to Jesus as the Messiah. But after you take the first cup, um, there's the breaking of the matzah, which is unleavened bread. And, you know, what we did uh, and what every Jewish family does and what Jesus did with his disciples, they would have taken three pieces of matzah bread and wrapped them in a very special cloth. It was called a unity cloth. So just get the, get the imagery here. Three pre- pieces of matzah wrapped together in a unity cloth. We look at that and we think, man, well, that's the Trinity. I mean, that's the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit wrapped together in a cloth that is called unity. Three persons, one essence, um, in the process, after you take the first cup and you uh, take the three pieces of matzah and put them together, you break the middle piece. It's broken in half. One piece remains, and another piece is wrapped in a piece of linen, and it's hidden somewhere in the house. It's called the afikoman, and the word afikoman means it comes after. The symbolism there is is that the second piece represents the second person of the triune Godhead. And, and just as that second piece is broken, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, God the Son, was broken for us. He was broken for us. We're going to talk about some scripture verses that, that point to that. And then his body was, was, was clothed in linen and it was buried. It was hidden. The meal goes on. And right before you get to the third cup, which is the cup of redemption, you celebrate the redeeming of the Apicoman. And so there's kind of a pause. And, and um, when everyone's reassembled together, it's after really the eating of the meal. When everyone's reassembled together, you redeem the Apicoman. You redeem that which had been hidden or that which was buried somewhere. And so a child goes you, you, you select a child, and the child goes to discover it. Now, there are a lot of scholars who believe um, that Mark was present on this evening. Uh, we know that Mark was present on the evening because he refers to himself as the one who was in the Garden of Gethsemane trying to get away, and his clothes were torn off, and he fled naked. That I mean, almost every scholar believes that that's Mark, and maybe just a little too embarrassed to like name himself. Um, but most likely, the celebration was in Mark's family home. His uh, mother was a very wealthy uh, person in Jerusalem, very significant part of the early church. Um, and it may be, as Mark was, no, without a doubt, here on this evening, it may be that he was the one who went to discover the Aphekomen. But that Aphekomen, that um, second piece of uh, the uh, matzah, the bread that, that had been broken, is brought to the one leading the Seder dinner. Um, the one leading the Seder dinner would have broken the Aphekomen in pieces and passed it out, distributed it, and would have led everybody in the eating of the Aphacomen. This is the moment that Jesus says, and I just want to pick this up in verse 22. This is the moment that Jesus said, and as they were eating, he took bread. What bread? He took the aphacomen. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. So he broke it into smaller pieces and distributed it to all of them. And he said, take this is my body. And so you have this amazing symbolism, right, where you have three pieces of matzah, and they're placed within a unity, and the middle one is, is broken in half. It's wrapped in linen. It's hidden. It's buried um, in, in some undisclosed place place it takes a child coming in innocence and naivety to discover it and find it and as that child brings it then it's broken into smaller pieces and everyone um, eats the pieces of bread and this is the symbolism he's saying take this is my body like all of this has been a, a foreshadow of me all of this was looking forward to me the sacrifice of my physical body that that incarnation remember the Bible says that it was through the power of the Holy Spirit, that that Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, fulfilled in a supernatural and miraculous way because God placed the Son in the womb. You know, he was, was born of a virgin miraculously, and he took on a physical body, a real physical body, through which not only he lived an absolutely perfect, sinless life, You know, and the sinless life of Christ is so significant because he did for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. He is the only one and will always be the only one who absolutely in every way fulfilled the law of God perfectly, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. You know, it was on the temple mount as he was surveyed, as he was inspected by the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, and they were trying to find some fault in him. Even Pilate himself said, I find no fault in this man. I mean, Pilate was used to finding fault in guilty people. And yet yet this was a unique man because he was a perfect man because he was God incarnate. who was the God-man. And Jesus Jesus takes the bread. Yeah. He takes the bread and he breaks it and he he says, take, eat, this is my body. All of this symbolizing, symbolizing our receiving him by faith. Right, I mean, for the, for the Eastern mind, when you take a piece of food and you eat it, I mean, it is assimilated into your whole being. This is why they were so careful and cautious about who they dipped in the sop with. Because maybe, you know, maybe you had some, some undefiled person that was dipping in the same sop as you, and as everyone's double dipping, by the way, I hate a double dipper, so don't double dip with me. But as everyone's double dipping and your saliva's now mixed in our, you know, hummus and, and, and this would have been hereseth, you know, this was what they were dipping in was a, a combination of, of apples and walnuts and it's, it's really tasty. But it would have been, you know, other people's slobber in there too. And so so when you're dipping in, and you're double dipping, and you're eating, well, you know, if that person ceremonially defiled, now you're defiled as well. Because as you're eating, you are consuming, and it's becoming one with you. But that's the symbolism. When he says, take, eat, this is my body, he's saying, consume me by faith. Consume me by faith. Let me influence you in such a way that I am being metabolized throughout your whole being body, soul, and spirit. And then not only that, as he finishes with the bread, he takes the third cup. Remember, uh, the cups represent sanctification, deliverance. The third cup is the cup of redemption. He waited until the cup of redemption to lay out this Last Supper or the Eucharist or communion as we call it today because that's what he was just about to do. He was just about to redeem. And so as he takes the cup, the Bible says he gave thanks and they all drank it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out, poured out for many. Now listen, we know that Christ, when he made his sacrifice, he died for the sin of the world, right? He, the, the sacrifice was sufficient for the sin of the world. It was effective for those who believe. But the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. He goes further and he says this new covenant, this relationship that is being established is blood-based. It's a blood-based relationship. Really, the new covenant is not a covenant between you and God. It's a covenant between the Father and the Son. That's, that's the covenant and the agreement that the father and the son have is that his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that whoever believes would be saved and brought into the family the the basis of the covenant i'm saying this because the basis of the covenant is not your works it's not your efforts it's not your performance it's not how good you are it's not you ki- keeping up listen to me it's not you keeping up your end of the bargain Some of us have a a really works-based approach to God and we've misconstrued the new covenant because the the basis of the covenant is not your efforts. The basis of the covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ. And the the blood of the covenant is sufficient for atonement. You say, well, what in the world is atonement? And the word atonement simply means, you you can think about it like this, it means at-one-ment, at one mint. And it's, it's spelled the same way. And so it means that two parties that were in disagreement have now been united together. Two parties that have been in disagreement have now been united together. If you have put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, if you believed in his incarnation, because by the way, believing in his incarnation is, is an essential. It's an essential. John would say... Um, you know around 90 AD first john uh, chapter 4 verse 1 anyone who denies the incarnation doesn't really know god and there were a lot of people that were doing it they were denying the incarnation and the problem with denying the incarnation is first of all of course it's false but if you really don't believe that jesus had a physical body then where where does the where does the crucifixion stand where does the bodily resurrection stand No, for him to have been crucified in a way that matters, for the resurrection to have really ushered in a whole new era and new age, he had to have a physical physical body. And so, I have no idea why I just went off on that. But atonement, atonement. one So, two parties that were in disagreement are brought together and made one. Now, atonement does seem like a complicated theological term, And uh, interestingly enough, you will not find the word atonement in the New Testament. You find it in the Old Testament. Um, But the imagery is there. So when you read atonement, you are also connecting that word to redemption. You're connecting that word to reconciliation. And all of those words carry three pictures in the New Testament. The first picture is of the temple. The first picture is of the temple where the sacrifice is made. The second picture is of the courtroom where a person's declared either guilty or innocent, and the third picture from a biblical perspective as you look at these words and do some background study is of the slave market where slaves were sold, and these pictures are poignant for us because they remind us that we have been reconciled to God, that what was broken, has been mended and fixed, and now we are at one with them. We have right standing with God. Why? Because the sacrifice was made in the temple. The sacrifice was an expression of worship, but it was a substitution on behalf of those who could not pay for themselves. And as you believe in Jesus Christ, you are acknowledging that that sacrifice was made once and for all. And now as you stand in the courtroom, as it were, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who declares you righteous. That's that second picture. It's the courtroom. It's, it is penal substitution. It is a place of judicial dec- declaration. I mean, we will all stand before God, and we will either be innocent or guilty. The only way to be innocent is through your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And when you believe in Jesus, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, if anyone sins, uh, remember, we have an advocate with the Father, the Son. It's not that, that Jesus is going to say, hey, you know what? She was really good. Father, you know, she tried her best. And yeah, she was, you know, a bonehead from time to time. But, you know, she, she did everything she could, you know. And so let's give her a pass. That's not going to be it. He's going to go like this. Right? He's going to go like this. He's going he's to show the holes show the holes that will still be in his wrists. You know, there's a lot of disagreement on this, um, but it does seem to me that the only scarred body in heaven is going to be the one of our Savior. the, The holes in his wrists and the hole in his side will be the evidence of our innocence, and it will be because of our trust and faith in him that the Bible says we will be declared, we will be declared innocent. And then the slave market, and this, this Greek word is lutrosis or apo-lutrosis. Um, Back in the day when a slave was brought to market and sold, there was a price that was paid. It was called the price of redemption, and that's what Christ did for us. He, he paid the price for our redemption because all of us were s- slaves to sin. All of us, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6, were slave to, slaves to sin, And the only way for us to be set free from our sin and to become slaves to righteousness was through the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says, this is Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, we've not been redeemed with inconsequential things like silver and gold according to the tradition of our forefathers, but with the precious blood, right? With the precious blood. How powerful is the blood of Jesus Christ? You know, I, I get this. Um, from time to time, people will roll in here and, you know, maybe they were invited by somebody or maybe they saw us online or maybe they were driving by and, you know, they're like, man, I always thought that was like a manufacturing plant. And then, and then I thought, I'm going to stop by and look, it's a church. And I never, I'm totally shocked. And, you know, some people come in and they're like, and they're thinking, man, I'm just, I, I could never be pleasing to God. You know, I could never be pleasing to God. You, you feel like you step into this place and, and now everything's defiled because you're present. And, and, and there's so much guilt and shame that you carry. You know, you think, God might be able to forgive other people, but my sin's too great. And that is not true. Your sin, your sin may be great, but it's not greater than the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. So two more biblical terms connected with atonement is Propitiation. And that word means that he took our guilt upon himself. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says this, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. When Jesus hung on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The penalty for our sin was laid upon him propitiation. He took our sin, the sin of the whole world, upon himself. How strong are the shoulders of Christ? Well, they're strong enough to bear the sin of the whole world. And then the other piece is expiation, which means he took our guilt away. So he took our sins upon himself so that he could take our sins away from us. Those are the two key words. When we think about the sacrifice of Christ and the institution of the bread And the cup, what are we reminded of? We're reminded of the reality that when he hung on the cross in some mystery that no one's ever going to be able to fully explain, even when he cried those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we do our best to try to encapsulate what that means. We really have no idea. We have no idea about the depth of suffering and the weight of what he bore for us. But we remember as we take the bread and as we take the cup that he was the one who took our guilt, our sins upon himself so that through his perfect sacrifice, he could take our sins away from us. Isaiah 53 says this, "Uh, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord, here it is, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this moment, don't underestimate what was happening when Christ ultimately was crucified for our sins. Cosmic power relations were changed at the cross, N.T. writes it, and I love that. In that moment, cosmic power relations were changed at the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities at the cross and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. And at the resurrection, the reality of his perfect sacrifice was manifested as Jesus, through his resurrection, Begun, initiated a new world, a new age, a new era, a new kingdom where we could live in the presence of God, not just waiting for that to come when we get to heaven, but experiencing the power of it now. I want you to finally just turn to 2 Corinthians with me tonight. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I think that, I think these verses really uh, express everything that's been conveyed tonight from from the beginning point of the sacrifice that he made and then everything that ensues from it. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation... God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. And Lord, we thank you tonight as we have the opportunity to to come to the communion table. Um, God, to just reflect to really reflect on what was being experienced in this moment 2,000 years ago and and that all that had led up to it and the symbolism and the fulfillment and, and no doubt the spiritual enlightening that was happening in the hearts of the disciples. Tonight, we just simply want to say thank you. Tonight, as we take of the bread, we know that, that emblematically we're taking of the body that incarnate body that Jesus though you did not consider it robbery to be equal with God you humbled yourself you came in the likeness of man in the form of a bondservant and humbled yourself to the point of death even the death of the cross And thank you that that you are our propitiation, that you took our guilt and our sin into yourself, upon yourself, that you are the one who has brought to us the expiation, that our sins have been sent away, and that we're forgiven and accepted and, and there's an at-one-ment that we have with the Father because, because the second person of the Trinity was, was broken for us and buried and resurrected and ascended. Help us to not consider these things to be trivial or trite Help us to not dwell in the the shallow pool of theology with a sense of self-satisfaction and masking our laziness. Help us to be passionate and to pursue a deeper understanding and more light, more light, more... Revelation, more care, more transformation. Pray that as you promised, Lord, that you'd be present with us in a very special way when we not only are together, but when we are breaking the bread and drinking the cup. Be with us and manifest the power of your healing. Manifest a closeness of intimacy tonight for those of us who've been seeing through a fog and just lift the fog. For those of us who've, who, who, who have hearts that have just, we misperceive, maybe because of pride, maybe because of misplaced affections and we're flying our lives upside down when we think we're right side up. Just bring the revelation tonight. Bring it in this moment of personal intimacy and the willingness to lay our hearts before you and, and to say, search me, oh God. Search, search me, God search our hearts and draw us near